0: My name's
1: Catherine Carr, and this is season three of Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. I'll always remember it because he says, He's
2: your younger sister, you're supposed to protect her. Are you mad? No, they weren't impressed.
1: <laughs> I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. This week, we're talking to Leroy Logan and his sister, Hyacinth Roberts. You felt like nothing could harm you felt safe.
2: It was how a home supposed to be, really.
3: I was a traitor. I, I was coconut. You know me. I was everything that they could think of.
1: But I'll also talk to them separately to get a more private take on the relationship. I didn't see him
2: as a police officer, and I still don't. I saw him as my brother. And all I was concerned was that he has to be safe.
3: And our faith helps us to be discerning and really understand the challenges you face and how you get through it and to be solution focused really
1: and in a new twist I'll be delving a little further back with the help of our sponsors find my path
3: I, I thought it'd be less but yeah that's interesting that's that's never. a new one for this podcast that's true sure.
1: you have a new reputation Leroy
3: no I, th- I think it just reinforces <laughs> people's view of me actually he's a nutter
1: <laughs> brothers and sisters are never straightforward Ex-policeman Leroy, or Lee, and Nurse Hyacinth grew up in N4, Finsbury Park, North London, except for a small stint back in Spanish Town in Jamaica, where their parents came from. Leroy saw it as a vocation to join the force, eventually becoming a superintendent in the Met. But this decision saw him abandon a career in research science, it upset his family and alienated his friends. His own dad was a victim of an assault by police officers when Leroy was just a young man. We talk about that, about reenacting Bruce Forsyth's golden shot, about messy bedrooms and the joy of flashcards, as well as the controversial SUS law. A reminder, it gave officers in the UK the ability to arrest any suspicious person loitering with the intent to commit a crime. But Leroy started by describing how he felt when Hyacinth arrived. He was five.
3: Oh, yeah. That little bundle of fun. Yeah, I can remember it vividly. I mean, I was desperate to have a younger sister. It was an answer to a dream.
1: So what was he like as an older brother then when you were small? Very attentive, actually. (laughs) We used to have
2: fun together. We used to go on his bicycle and had the bar. Mm. I would jump on the bar and we would like cycle around. The world was our oyster. Wherever we thought we were going to go, we just go. We had fun, must admit.
3: Mum and Dad couldn't afford a new bike, so I got the frame. And a family friend used to come round. Remember Fred? um, Yeah,
2: that was Dad's friend. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Uncle Fred helped me have my bike, so I was so proud of it. It had these Mustang handlebars, you know, and they got sprayed gold. It was a golden colour. I I rode it for, for years. Even though everyone had gears and everything, I, I really had, <laughs> it was a fixed wheel. So you just had to, you can only go as fast as you can pedal, you know.
1: When you're describing riding around on your bike with him, where are you imagining? What streets are you on? Well, mainly is where we
2: used to live in Corbyn Street. We never had any plans, but usually we were out the house for a good while. We had some money in our pocket, so we could buy drinks and things like that. So it's usually the neighbourhood. We didn't go too far at the neighbourhood.
1: So your childhood, you were both born in the UK, right? And then you had a few years back in Jamaica, but you were tiny then. Do you remember that at all?
2: Not at all. I was a baby. I have no recollection of Jamaica. Only what Leeway told me about that when he was in Jamaica, they loved his accent because he was English. And they just kept saying, speak, come on, speak again. So he told me about that. But from personal, no, I have no recollection. I see England as where I was born. So yeah, British citizen.
3: My mother took my sister myself to Jamaica in the early 60s. And she was pregnant with my younger brother, O'Neill. And while she was out in Jamaica, she gave birth. Unfortunately, O'Neill didn't survive more than a few weeks. And losing him was very traumatic as you can imagine. I've never seen a small Coffin before, so when I saw his coffin, it looked so small, you know, I can vividly remember that.
1: And your mum went over there because she was homesick, is that right? Well yes, I mean, when
2: she came over to England it was a big cultural shock, because when I asked her I said, why did you come to England, it's so grey, and she started to laugh. And she said, well we all came over here with the prime objective of we're going to stay here for five years and then go back home. And, but obviously there's no family or friends. So you made your friends and I guess she was homesick for family. We take that for granted now. You could just jump on a plane and you're home for a couple of days and come back. But then it was more expensive.
1: So yeah, she was homesick. She just wanted to touch roots again, I guess. That must've been quite a a trip for your mum to leave England because she was homesick and take you back to Jamaica and then to undergo something so hard.
3: Yeah, it was tough. I mean, it did have its um, massive impact on her. She had a couple of nervous breakdowns because of it. It was one of the reasons why we eventually went back to the UK because it was so tough for her. We then got reunited with my dad. He was Mm. pleased to see us.
1: Sorry, that means then he'd never met your little brother?
3: No, unfortunately. And that really had an impact on him. Not being there for my mum and not even having a picture. It, it was a tough all around experience, but we, you know, became stronger and more united and a, a tighter, a close family.
2: My dad, he was, uh, how do you say, he would do anything for me and my brother. He just wanted us to achieve, you know. Both my parents worked, and how they saw it was our job was just to go to school and do our best. Their job was to do everything else. So they made it comfortable, warm. You felt like nothing could harm you, felt
1: safe. It was how a home supposed to be, really. You, um, Hyacinth said your parents created a very warm and safe environment for you to grow up in and provided you with everything you need. But obviously, if they couldn't afford to buy a bike, then they were working really hard to make ends meet.
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, holiday times for us would be either in dad's van because he was a delivery man or we'd go around to where mum was working. She'd always get a job local to the house.
2: Mummy used to be a presser of samples, you know, like now if, for example, Zara designed a new dress or something, um, my mum would be the presser to bring out the best in the material so that when they put it on the model or the mannequin to um, hopefully win the contract the factory.
1: Oh, I see. Was she stylish, your mum? Did she quite like fashion?
2: Yeah, when I think about it, she was very humble. She wouldn't go shopping for clothes. If anything, I took her shopping. But my mother, she had such a keen eye, she could buy underwear for me, spot on. Oh, wow. I would say, mum, I'm a size 12. She goes, hi, Saint? I know what size you are. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and believe me, she was right every time.
3: Yeah, yeah. So. I, 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 I was, I was never out of socks. That's for sure. Yeah, socks and never underwear, socks.
1: guarantee.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And what was it like then going out with your dad on the truck, Leroy? Can you remember what that was like?
3: It was like a discovery, you know. You outside London, around the southeast. So you know, when we would go to Southend, you know, it was our chance to, to say, oh, we've been to different parts of the country. So because a lot of our friends didn't know much more. And London itself, if not just certain parts of London. So we were really fortunate.
1: Your sister said that she can't remember anything at all about Jamaica. Obviously, she was tiny herself. She was only what yeah. a year old at that time. Um, but it was quite a positive trip for you, I understand. Apart from that tragedy, the trip had some positive aspects.
3: Well, yeah, that, that, that sadness and trauma was offset by an amazing sense of cultural immersion seeing people who look like me doing amazing jobs from prime ministers to teachers nurses doctors even police officers I used to love seeing the police officers because there's a red or a blue seam down their trousers and they all look very fit they really looked the palm. I suppose psychologically it had an impact on me seeing that because I ultimately became a cop but that sense of identity and belonging And knowing if I can see it, I can do it, gave me a real sense of confidence to aspire to do the things that I believe I was capable of doing.
1: Which must have been in contrast to the um, community around you, well, the wider community around you in N4, North London. You know, um, when are we talking now, late 60s, 70s? Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, I must admit, it, it gave me a real sense of <laughs> superiority complex in a lot of ways, because I, I, I wasn't going to buy into people defining me and trying to put me into a box. And I, I remember even when I was at secondary school at a careers appointment, and I said I wanted to be a scientist, possibly going into medicine.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: this careers advisor said, well, isn't that a bit too high? Don't you think you should aim a bit lower? And I went back and told my dad, and he went absolutely he was beside himself. He yeah. had to calm down before he went to go and see the teacher and say, Listen, <laughs> do not ever try and define my child and what he's capable of doing.
1: And do you think I mean this might be a bit simplistic, but do you think there's something about the mentality of someone who's moved country to kind of look for opportunity that has that passes on something to their children about, come on, there is this opportunity here. So go out there and make the best of it.
2: Well, yes, I think it takes the great courage to leave your home, a home that you you know, this is where you've been brought up, to go to a foreign land and make it your home. So I guess they were inspired to sort of say, well, we moved from our land, Jamaica, to come here. Now you've got to try and do your best now. Because my dad said, well, The opportunities you've got in England, unfortunately, I didn't have in Jamaica.
1: So do your best with it. And was Leroy quite a studious boy? Did you follow in studious footsteps?
2: Um, I would say that he was very, well, studious and meticulous, the way he studied, um, with flashcards and everything like that. I personally, I'm more creative and more visual.
3: The work ethics in Jamaica, you don't talk, you know, you have to, focus that ethics sort of live with me throughout my schooling Um, I wasn't a perfect student don't get me wrong but um, I knew I was going to have to battle to be seen as good as anyone else I'd have to work harder
2: his way of learning is completely different compared to me
1: but it works (laughs) (laughs) I'm literally the East to the West (laughs) completely different (laughs) Hyacinth said you were a very meticulous and studious older brother. She could remember flashcards, (laughs) a lot of flashcards when it came to exams.
3: I still use them now, actually, you know, to give speeches and different presentations.
1: Don't knock them then. (laughs) No, no. no. (laughs) And what could you do to Leroy or Lee? What could you do to wind him up? like the way the brothers and sisters can.
2: Just mess with his books. (laughs) Move them. Do anything like that, disrupt that, or if he's getting ready to go out, uh, disturb his clothes because he used to go out with his friends and stuff like that and he used to lay out his clothes on the bed all pressed and nice, or just get in the way (laughs) when he's getting ready to go out. That was a serious time. (laughs) He's getting ready.
3: (laughs) We shared a bedroom in, in those early days and I must admit my side of the the room was very organized and she would be coming on my side and say oh you've got this you've got that and and then when we had our separate bedrooms that was an amen i was so pleased to have my own bedroom but yeah she would stray in there and um i see things missing or out of place and i knew she had been in there it, it, <laughs> but it was interesting though because she, she she's always been that sort of uh, organic sort of person
1: so how could you wind her up then you know how she thinks she could wind you up by messing up your meticulously arranged stuff
3: how could you wind her up I'd say well as your older brother this is what i think we should do you know that sort of thing
2: i don't know because sometimes he would come up with all different things you know that i'm short or whatever <laughs> so i say yeah okay you got the height but i got the looks so you know
3: <laughs> i could order around to some extent but as she got older she thought forget that you know you're not going to order me about in preparation for this conversation i, I remember um, there used to be this program called the golden shot um by bruce Forsyth, and um i remember playing this out on her uh, and it till this day it i i, I, I am absolutely appalled by my behavior
2: you're talking about the dart <laughs> yeah i remember we was in the garden and he told me to stand beside the shed door
3: and I used to have these. I don't know where I got this dartboard, and these and these no. were real darts. I know. It's terrible. <laughs> I shouldn't really admit to this.
2: You, as a child, you don't really think about that darts can hurt you. You know what I mean? Anyway, <laughs> Leo decided that he was a golden shot. So you yeah. used
1: to put her on the shed and then throw darts at her.
3: <laughs> Not at her. Around her. Um,
2: and he threw the darts and one went to the left one went to the right and one went above my head and my dad and my mum nearly had a heart attack because he goes are you mad are you mad I'll always remember it because he says "Is your younger sister you're supposed to protect her are you mad no they weren't impressed <laughs> they weren't impressed
3: when I think about what I was doing I thought what oh, dear. I mean I, I was in serious hot water
1: He said he got in loads of hot water. Can you remember what the specific punishment would have been?
2: Well, I mean, my dad would have um, probably sent him to his room, denied television. Yeah, I mean, for me, I was in clover, you know what I mean, because I was the innocent sister. But yeah, he was in a lot of trouble because my dad could not. He says, he goes, Satan is a bad man. You could have blinded her. What would you have done? And things like that, you know, but we never thought of that. We just thought we were doing the golden shot type of thing, type, you know.
3: I was just saying that I've never admitted to that to anyone. So, well, publicly anyway. So, yeah, that's, that's never... a new one for this podcast, that's for sure.
1: You have a new reputation, Leroy.
3: <laughs> no, I, th- I think it just reinforces people's view of me, actually. It's a nutter. <laughs>
1: This season of Relatively is sponsored by Find My Past, the online home of the 1921 census. By 1921, people from all over the world had begun arriving in Britain to start new lives. People like the remarkable Dr Harold Moody. Jamaican-born Dr Moody graduated top of his class studying medicine at King's College London and set up a practice working from home after struggling to find a job. Perhaps there's an inspiring story in your past. Find out in the 1921 census, exclusively available online at findmypast.co.uk. Hold up. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash How do you think he would describe your character? You've described his character really well as meticulous and sort of guided by the truth and all of these nice studious qualities. How do you think he would describe you? I would
2: describe myself as a person that is loyal, loving. If I believe I'm right, I am not going to deviate, so people may class it as stubborn. I don't call it as stubborn, I class that as being, how do you say, motivated.
3: Oh, she's very strong and forthright. She doesn't mess about well, what you see, is what you get with Iceland. Um She doesn't hold back. Um, she's um, willing to tell you what you need to know, not what you necessarily want to hear. No nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) No
1: nonsense. To change the subjects a little bit, how did you feel when your brother signed up to become a police officer? He'd been a research scientist before then. What did you think about the police before he joined? And then when he decided to be a police officer, how did that make you feel?
2: For me, um, I saw police officers as I found them, if anything, not approachable. And the way they looked at you on the street. And at that time, I'm a child. You know, and the way they looked at you with very suspicious eyes. And so when my brother said he wanted to be a police officer, I said, what? Why? And he says, well, if you want to change something, you've got to be in it.
3: It didn't go down very well because the daily experience of policing was bad enough. While I was still in the process of applying, my dad was getting beaten up over a traffic matter by local police officers obviously made my dad feel very disappointed uh, that I was joining the ranks of officers who beat him up for no apparent reason.
2: I didn't see him as a police officer, and I still don't. I saw him as my brother, and all I was concerned was that he has to be safe because he's the only brother I have. So for him being a police officer, it was his personal choice, but I supported him.
3: And obviously he knew he'd get stopped because of the colour of his skin and being on the road every day. So, he, you know, he felt that he... he it's just one of these things he'd have to get through.
1: But um, the idea of his son joining, not the yeah, other side, but, but joining the, the ranks of the people who perhaps weren't sympathetic to him, that must have been hard.
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, and... Um, and I think he was also disappointed that I didn't continue with my, my job as a research scientist at the Royal Free Hospital. So I uh, was a bit of a disappointment for a few years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Would you say that was brave of him? Oh, yes. Because people
2: weren't happy. My friend said, oh, your brother's bull. Oh, your brother's this. I said, let me tell you something. I'll, I'll ask you this question. When somebody's breaking into your house, who are you going to call? Oh, the MP. Or you're gonna call a police officer who are you gonna call and that ended that argument so for, as far as far as i was concerned you know what i mean when we need help you're looking for a police officer and that yeah. police officer has a family so yeah
1: yeah so t- tell me about the event if you don't mind it was 1982 when your dad was beaten up by two police officers and how old were you then
3: Oh, 82, I was uh, 25, 25, yeah.
1: What was the first you knew of it? Tell me, from your point of view, what happened?
3: Well, I was at the Royal Free, because I'd been working there for a couple of years, and I got a um, a phone call from my mother saying, Dad has been beaten up by the police, and we're going to the hospital with him So meet us there. And um, I'd actually walked past him in the A&E, because I didn't recognise him, because he's. He was totally contorted and and bruised. He was literally black and blue. And, um, yeah, I I couldn't believe it. I was so incensed. I I, have never smelled or tasted hate in a way that I did. I'm glad I was able to turn that around. And I thought, well, there's no way I can join just for the love and loyalty to my father. But that calling of policing kept on nagging me and... I thought, you know, I, I would still continue because I was already, I had, I had applied, I went through the interview, etc. but I still didn't tell him because, you know, what had happened to him, but he found out the hard way when police officers knocked at the door of his house, because I'd moved away by then, I had my own flat, he, you know, he called me up saying, there's police officers at my door saying that you're going to join the police. I said, oh my gosh, yeah, I meant to tell you, Dad, and he dropped the phone. <laughs>
1: When you said, when you looked at police officers before Leroy became one, you sort of were a bit wary of them. Um, Did that have anything to do with the way that different racial groups were treated by the police or the relationships between black communities and the police back in the day? I mean, not that much seems to have changed, but was there that sort of element of unrest in your thinking? Like, oh, Leroy, what are you doing? (laughs) Are you sure? I knew quite a few friends that were, you know, stopped
2: and searched. And you heard of people in Broadwater Farm. You heard of all different people in different... I had friends that lived in flats and so forth. And they'd come and say the police came and how they were heavy-handed and they didn't speak to you with any respect. It was a police force. It wasn't a police service. If
1: they spoke to you, it was
2: very in a condescending manner.
1: Mm. And it strikes me, though, like reading about your career as I have a little bit um, with your family background and coming from Jamaica and living where you lived and your dad's experience and growing up as a young black man in North London and all of these different elements that you're constantly walking really quite a narrow tightrope between people's expectations of what you should be doing, could be doing, how you could be persuaded to fit in and make your life easier but you can't do that because it would mean you'd have to deviate from your own truth but the path you had to sort of plot during your career was a really tricky narrow one that's what it seems like to me
3: yeah it was not only tricky and narrow it was very isolated very insular type of existence you know a lot of my friends even my close friends were saying what are you are you going mad joining the police and they persecute us like this you know, because we had friends and family who had been subject to the SUS law where police could arrest you on suspicion that you're about to commit arrestable offence. That's why we used to call them the thought police, because they could <laughs> read our minds, obviously. Mm. Um, we so you were you're a traitor crimes. in some
1: ways. Like you would, you oh,
3: would... I, was more, I was a traitor. I, I was um, coconut. You know, me. I was everything that they could think of. Uh, some people threatened me with physical harm that, you know, if I join the police, don't come around me, I'll, you know, we'll sort you out. Everyone was against me. Community, uh, my colleagues, when I finally joined, was my worst nightmare. Um, but I had to do it. And despite what people were saying about me, um, I took to care of my purpose.
1: That must be a bit of a funny feeling when... Um none of my siblings are sort of in the public eye or famous or anything like that but it must be funny when a sort of person in your family your brother or your sister is then out on the world stage in some way or vulnerable in some way or making a stand in some way that must feel weird I would say it's not weird
2: I am (laughs) proud of him um I admire it because I said what you do I cannot do. And I refuse to do. I don't believe he's standing in front of a camera and things like that. Not at all. So I admire him and I admire the fact that, you know, he speaks his truth. And it's good that he can articulate it in a way that, look, this is what's happened
1: and it's not right. Your brothers sort of referenced his Christian faith quite a lot throughout some of the harder times he had when he was a police officer and whatnot. Was that a faith that you were brought up in at home?
2: Oh, yes, definitely. My mother's faith was uh, without unquestionable. And I admired it so much. You know, she would just say, you know, God is there. He knows us. Pray, believe, receive. You know, her faith was un, unwavering, unwavering. Yeah.
1: Did you inherit it?
2: I believe so, yes, yes.
3: So, this sort of spiritual um, journey, um, an anchor to be resilient, purposeful and intentional to carry out what you want to do. Um, And our faith helps us to be discerning and really understand the the challenges you face and how you get through it and to be solution focused really. And I I suppose we just mirrored what our parents did. Our parents were very real problem solvers, especially that Windrush generation having to get through so much difficulty.
1: And was that useful? Or how was it useful when things were difficult? Did the family get through that with faith together? How was that navigated?
2: It was faith because everything transpired, God was there. Because when he was being assaulted and he was shouting out his name, a friend heard his voice. Imagine he's on a a side road, off a main road, and fortuitous, this person was walking nearby and heard him calling, saying, my name is Mr. Kenneth Logan. And he kept saying his name. And that same person came to Corbyn Street and knocked the door and says, your husband has been arrested. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's God.
1: The Stephen Lawrence murder and the Damonella Taylor murder happened during your policing career, Leroy. And there have mm-hmm. been endless inquiries and investigations into the Met and training advice and Black Lives Matter and all these different things. And only in the last couple of weeks have we heard, you know, oh, the Met's going to get a new um, anti-racism training, whatever it is, module. Do you retain a sense of optimism after all of this? Or are you despondent that there ever will be proper
3: change? Yeah, Um, I, I, I must admit, I am disappointed, but not discouraged. I get a sense that, you know, the human condition whatever service or organisation you are, it's always going to default back to what you feel comfortable with. Um, policing really hasn't come to terms with its race problem since black people came over in the 50s. Well, actually from the 40s with the Windrush. Uh, and it, you know that's why the SUS law was such a, an issue for us growing up, especially young black men. And there's still an issue about young black men now
2: I feel as though there's still lots to learn and when you hear about another life has been lost, you ask the question, you know, again, you hear about these reports and it's okay to have reports, but what happens after the reports? What's actions? Every time you hear something, you ask yourself automatically, if that person was white, would they be treated like that? Would they be put against the wall? Would they be spoken to as if to say they're not a human being? If I'm asking this question, right, that means to me, there's not a lot of
1: progress. And I suppose my question was really unfair because actually I'm asking you whether you're optimistic because all of these things have seem to maybe have stayed the same or sometimes slipped backwards but actually without people like you Leroy without people like your brother Hyacinth <laughs> who mm-hmm. put all of that effort in who knows where we could have been now like the counter narrative that you know True. could it could be a lot worse without people who've done all that good work
2: yes but we still got to keep asking the question you know why is there a disparity why is it? why why you know, and, and we can't stop asking that question. But yes, people like my brother, if he didn't go into this, if he didn't go in to change it, things would have been much worse, no doubt.
3: Yeah, I do feel that uh, I had to go into the organisation to change it from within. There's no regrets. I, I truly believe that I had to do what I had to do. I've done it to the best of my ability. And my public service still continues. Um, similar to Hyacinth, you know, even when you think you're gone into a different part of your career, Um, public service still runs through our veins and it's our purpose and we'll continue to do that, as long as we've got health and strength.
1: Uh, So it's really interesting, Leroy, to hear about your um, career in the police force and particularly interesting... Um, to hear that you grew up in North London because the sponsors of this season of Relatively is findmypast.co.uk, the family history experts who've just published the 1921 census. And in that census, it has family history, but it also has a sort of broader social history about what jobs people did and how they lived. And they've had a look for you specifically into the police force in 1921 when there were generally in England and Wales, 73,156 people who identified as being involved in police activity. But in Islington, mm-hmm. not far from where you grew up, 888 people identified in that way.
3: That's pretty, that's that's quite large, that's quite large.
1: It's like, uh, It's 1.2% of the total population.
3: Well, that's about, that's pretty good for in terms of, well, maybe they're not all police officers, maybe they're involved in security or safety in some form. But yeah, actually, I, I, I thought it'd be less. But yeah, that's interesting.
1: And one of the jobs, I think you'd quite like this, in 1921, the police force, or the police officers were charged with locating and counting vagrants. And there are numerous returns for individuals discovered sleeping roughs in barns, tents and open fields. And all of the entries are sort of put into the census. Um, one of them was filled out by Sergeant Henry Harry George Francis. Um, where he recorded seven men ranging age from 28 to 70 and the residences on the 21 census were filled in as in a barn, in the open field or in a tool shed.
3: <laughs> well, there was a lot of quite draconian acts of parliament in those days to um, keep people out of certain areas, um, not to spoil highway obstruction or willful and openly and lewdly uh, or seenly being in a public place and all these sort of things. So, yeah, it 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 was policing was pretty tough, even in those days.
1: Not much changes. Also, interestingly, if you're talking about pushing boundaries, I thought um, back in 1921 there was the sort of start of the women's police force. It was founded in 1914. You probably know all of this from your flashcards from your exams. Um, (laughs) Yeah,
3: exactly. But in
1: between 1919 and 1922, there were only two hundred female officers in the Metropolitan Police's
0: women's
1: patrol in London um, but in 1922 funding was cut and that went down to 40 so I think the wow. police force can be a story of one step forward and two steps back sometimes
3: yeah yeah um, remember we had our first uh, female commissioner um, it, it didn't end up as well as I think it should, could have been and she didn't continue on to do us extended contract for another couple of years but I think women in policing is one of the success stories. Um, So I would like to think it would be two steps forward, three steps forward and keep going.
1: Thank you to Leroy and Hyacinth and thank you too for listening. I, I, I don't have a, no, I only call
2: him Lee really. I only call him Lee. I don't call him Leroy. I've never called him Leroy unless he annoys
1: me. To see some really sweet pictures of them or to catch up on code-breaking sisters Pat and Jean Outram's amazing story head to the website relativelypodcast.com. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to our sponsors for this season of Relatively Find My Past for digging into their extraordinary records and uncovering the surprising and often revelatory family stories some of which you've heard today. Find My Past is the only place online where you can access the 1921 census. So if you want to start your family tree or add colour to what you know already, then findmypast.co.uk is the place to do it. Next week, Ashanti and Shakira Akabusi on motivation and their famous dad. Thank you to Tanita Tikaram for letting us use her amazing song. This is a Pocket Production and sound design is by Nick Carter at mixonics.com of love and hate Staying by the fireside There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside Another the rain may fall Your father's calling you You still feel safe inside Oh, your mom's too proud Your brother's ignoring you You still feel safe inside Oh, was this solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? i wow.